Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. This week's episode offers a remarkable insider's view of the art world. Tim Olson is one of Australia's most recognised and respected art identities and successful gallery owners. As the son of Australia's greatest living painter, John Olson, Tim has led a fascinating life and fortunately has lived to tell the tale. In fact, his recent best-selling memoir, Son of a Brush, is a revelation. It sheds extraordinary light on one of our most acclaimed and influential artistic families. Growing up in the shadow of the great John Olson came with many challenges, but rather than play the victim card, Tim's smart enough to realise what a privilege it's been and eventually found his own voice and a broad way of contributing to the art world. Through his galleries and other philanthropic work, Tim has supported the careers of many of Australia's leading established artists, but also has nurtured the creative lives of many of the emerging artists who now have gone on to great success and are part of the art establishment. Life can be pretty turbulent and grim at times, but when you spend some time with someone like Tim, you come away with fresh insights and awareness of art and appreciation as to the gifts that great artists contribute to our culture. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the blank canvas, Tim Olson. G'day, Tim. Lee, how are you? Good, mate. Good to see you there. Good to see you too. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's probably been, I don't know, 10 years or something? Well, we had a lovely weekend at, at, uh, at Gwingana, remember, for the opening of the spa. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the last time we saw each other. And then you guys went to Melbourne, so. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, but it's good to virtually see you again. <laughs> Absolutely. Mate, I've just finished your book a couple of days ago and, wow, congratulations. It's an incredibly well-written book and, honestly, without pissing in your pocket right at the start here, it's one of the best memoirs I've ever read. Well, Lee, I'm, I'm deeply flattered and um, it's very hard to... Um, to confront yourself in doing a memoir because it is a cathartic process and you want it to be an honest and true account of your experiences, your feelings and, you know, how it's uh, evolved the way that I am today. And, and um, I tried to write a memoir that wasn't a victim memoir. It was about that I've had a tough life at times but also a good life. But it's those hard lessons that have, have turned out to be the best ones in retrospect. Yeah, mate. No, that sounds very true to me. It rings very true. And having lived through Kate writing her memoirs, I know how confronting yeah. it can be. And having been the, I guess, the editor of that at times and then given the hat of like, well, you've got to get Kate to actually look at this. And Kate's like, oh, I can't even confront and read it again. I, you know, and going through those whole conversations, actually that project with her was incredibly difficult and confronting and, and yours is like the depths of truth that you've gone to in yours are kind of like I'd say 5X of, of what Kate did with hers. So, yes. um, you know, hats off to you, I guess, for, for many reasons. It's confronting on a personal note but as you touched on there, you didn't take the victim route and that's why it was so enjoyable. Mm, mm. 
I mean, we all live with the idea that we could blame everyone else for what happens to us in life. But ultimately, you've got to take responsibility for yourself and see where perhaps you may have played a part in what happened, where certain things have, haven't gone your way. And um, I think when you get to, a, to an age where you stop blaming others and you uh, essentially um, don't really overthink about what other people think about you, it's incredibly liberating. Yeah, that absolutely is, isn't it? It's kind of the the road to freedom, really, taking that kind of responsibility because then you yeah. can do something about it. If you did it, you can actually fix it and do something about it and come out the other side. If it's always someone else's fault, you can never do anything about it. Well, a lot of people bought that book and went straight into the index to see if their name was there <laughs> and some of them were terribly disappointed. <laughs> but I left Oh, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, classic. I mean, did you know you were a great writer or is that something that you discovered through the course of doing this book? Um, you know, I wasn't particularly academic at school and I was, you know, probably considered one of the, uh, you know, I was always very um, intuitive and, and uh, I've always been a very good lateral thinker. But maybe I sort of had an ADH situation Um I think with a lot of us in life, you know, we excel in things that we're interested in and if we're not interested in it, then we kind of don't really embrace it. So, um, you know, subsequently I went to university and art school, uh, got a degree in visual arts, fine arts and also um, child psychology too because I, I was really happy at one stage of my life to become a teacher and um, because I knew I had a lot to impart from my life experience but I found my way into the gallery world and I still consider myself a teacher instead of teaching children, I'm teaching adults, because when people do engage in art, and particularly if they're wanting to buy or purchase it and take it home, they need to know all the, the nuances, the metaphors, and what makes this art good. So subsequently from my academic ability in the, in the end that I've discovered through having to write essays at university and now writing essays for different artists that I represent for their catalogues, there was a kind of vernacular built in me that I think is really a subsequent, I, I suppose, an, an evolution that comes from sitting around the table with people like Patrick White, you know, Barry Humphreys, David Williamson. Robert Hughes. The array of very verbal people that I sat at lunch tables with. It kind of somehow, like osmosis, it sort of permeates you. And my father always, you know, read us poetry and both my father and my mother are avid readers. And so it's like as a child we can learn any language. I think um, the rhythms and the, I suppose, the kind of language that I grew up around, wanting it to sound elitist, but I just grew up around a lot of articulate people. Yeah, one of the things I enjoyed, though it is well written, you haven't got too esoteric with it either. You haven't used a lot of big words to, you know, show how smart you are and all the rest of it. It's actually really accessible and I'm no expert in art, particularly painting. And I found it yeah. gave me a, a much greater understanding of painting and artists in general. Like it really increased my affinity for the whole world to the point where I just want to, once I get out of here, I want to go to galleries. I want to go and see art. Mm. I, I, feel, mm. I felt really uplifted by it. So well done on making it accessible. And I think that that makes it a, a wonderful contribution to our arts and culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is at the end of the day, I just had to be me. And, and being a good teacher, you know, you can't be, you know, what they call a sesquipedalian verbose person. Sesquipedalian means a person that uses large words unnecessarily. 
So perhaps using that word as being a sensitive daily. But, you know, I think art should be approachable and the amount of art speak that I hear out there in the art world these days, it is just so unnecessary. And it's people who are perhaps um, trying to be um, something more than they are. And I think art loses its way when it tries to become too theoretical or academic. Art is a visual experience. Of course, artists that read avidly or have a, um, a capacity to embrace poetry, it gives them ideas which they put into their paintings or their sculptures or their photography. But it doesn't need to become over-intellectualised because at the end of the day, we are sensory people that through our eyes and through our, our feeling for things, like how we feel for music is as much as important as the narrative or the, the lyrics in a sense. Like music, art has to provide that totality of experience. It might just be visual, but I think great art, particularly when you walk into a great museum in, in Paris, say the Rodin Museum, or perhaps you go into the Mark Rothko room at Tate Britain in London, and you're just kind of going like, wow, I'm not just seeing this, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling what the artist was, was really kind of um, trying to express from their soul. And that's what I try to help people to extend in regard to the way they approach art is to see it as more than just a visual but a complete sensory experience and to keep it simple in language. Yeah, that's, mm. that's beautiful. That's a great approach. One of the things you said in the book which I found interesting regarding art schools, you said students are asked today to interrogate too much philosophy and take on an activism agenda before they can even draw properly. Well, you know, drawing is the vocabulary. Drawing is the alphabet. Whether you look at a great filmmaker, whether you talk about a musician who writes music, whether you're talking about a photographer and particularly a sculptor, all of them, the only way they are able to formulate their ideas and make them authentic is to journal. And I think journaling in life is really important. Quite often in regard to um, knowing whether an artist is real or not, is uh, whether they do journal because looking through my father's journals, they're not just drawings, but they're also notes and, and written thoughts and ideas. And drawing is in particular a way by which you capture that vision or that thought in that time, whether journeying through a train or perhaps sitting in a restaurant, being able to sort of take down your experience of what you felt or what you saw at that time is really the, the, the backbone of perhaps, you know, writing the script of how your art is, is created. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Do you think art schools have lost their way with their emphasis on the theory and this activism agenda? Well, a lot of teachers these days um, are basically non-practising artists. The sad thing about the way art schools has gone is it's less studio-orientated and a lot of the teachers there, because of the way that schools and art institutions are funded, you know, it's cheaper to employ full-time staff than part-time staff. In my day, we had practising artists who would come and do a day or so at the art school. So, you know, there were, you know there's always a tradition of, say, people like Lloyd Rees, who used to teach drawing at Sydney University to the architecture students. I had a plethora of very well-known painters when I went to the National Art School, and um these days, those artists don't get a job because there's a teacher who can work full-time who isn't necessarily engaged in making art, who is basically working from the format of theory rather than practice. 
and practice is what students need to learn and getting back to the idea of drawing. You know, how can we expand our thoughts without being able to draw them first? You know, you don't get everything right first go. I know looking at many of my artists, in particularly my father, there might be a series of drawings before the major painting has even started. And that kind of process has certainly been subordinated in art education. Thank God we've still got the National Art School, which still teaches what they call the Atelier system. Atelier in French means studio, by which the student gets a studio and the teachers come around and they're able to create their space because um, all successful artists create their little environment by which they're able to express themselves. You know, like Monet living in Gervinay, having his studio, looking at um, water lilies. And, you know, that became his biggest metaphor in regard to how much he loved the world or he loved his provincial landscape. Yeah. I think the sad thing about what's happening in the art world is everyone wants to be international. And when we look through art history, early art was really basically an extension of religion when you look at the Renaissance or what have you. But through history, it's the artist's interaction with their immediate environment, whether she or he is inspired by their garden or their local village or their, their social environment, like for the German expressions, you know, who were engaged in the state of Germany after the war. Uh, you've got Henry Moore, the sculptor, who did incredible drawings in the subways whilst London was being bombed. These are all real experiences that uh, create a narrative that wasn't trying to be international. It was just what they were confronting then and there. It really frustrates me how a lot of the, the sort of fashionable push in the art world these days think that landscape painting or painting is dead and that to be international is what it's all about. The minute you try to do that or to, to be that, you lose touch with your inner self and who you really are and what your environment is. You know, we need to find truth in what our surroundings are. Yeah, well said. It's the same with filmmaking and music as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's authentic to talk about what is real in your day-to-day living. Absolutely agree. Hey, mate, do you, do you have a copy of your book handy? I don't, actually. All right. Well, I was going to ask you to read a couple of paragraphs, but if you haven't got it there, I've got it here, so I'll read it. Yeah, just on art and culture and the, and the importance of it. I mean, so many sections I love, but um, I'm going to read this one out for those that haven't read the book. Culture is not just about art, money or religion, nor solely about the decorative. It is not about the songs, the poetry, or the prayers we utter, or the writings we leave behind. Culture is about a body of moral and ethical values that can surround each individual who descends from us. The maintenance of cultural integrity is the maintenance of human civilization itself. How fortunate I am having been brought up in a family that has shown this to me. It's written by you, mate. That really moved me. <laughs> yeah, that was a good day, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> tell, us, tell us about, do you remember writing that? Did that just come out as a stream of consciousness or was it something that you came back and edited? You know, I mean, I, what I wanted to do with this book, obviously, is take the bullshit factor out of what it is to live in the art world. It's quite funny. I wrote this book over six years and um, most of the writing I did was in my downtime. And I had a gallery in New York at the time, which unfortunately due to COVID I had to to um, close down. But I'd catch the uh, QF11 to Los Angeles. I'd noticed there's not one good movie being shown on, on the screen. I, and so I thought, well, there's a lovely little app called Notes in our phones. 
So I'd start writing down thoughts and ideas and next thing you know, um, I haven't slept and suddenly I'm landing at LAX, you know, and I'm in Los Angeles and I've written 10,000 words. You know, sometimes you, it's almost like you, you channel a series of thoughts and perspectives that get sort of filtered down to a couple of sentences or a paragraph that can just hit you in regard to the essence or explaining it simply. Got it. Mm. Got it. Mm. Can I read another one? <laughs> uh, here's another one. Just because I didn't go to college, I didn't go to art school, I just, you know, I failed the final year at school and had no idea what I was, I was going <laughs> to yeah. And um, I just went out and worked. I ended up doing an apprenticeship as a, can you believe it, a, a radio fitter and mechanic. And I'm the most unhandy man you've ever known, so <laughs> it wasn't a good fit. What was good about it, I quickly worked out, well, I'm hopeless at this, I'm hopeless at that. And fortunately, I, I discovered something I was good at, a passion, and I worked hard and have managed to um, make a pretty interesting career for myself. But because I've never studied the theory of art or painting or went to art school or whatever, I just feel like I don't know much and I'm always voraciously learning. And I'm so interested in artists and how people create and hence the podcast, The Blank Canvas. I'm just endlessly interested in how people create and I admire people who keep creating no matter the barriers. So what I loved about your book, I mean, it's almost like a Bible on creation and art. Now, Lee, you're going a bit over, over the so that's top. A bit there, over, that's a bit over the top. Okay. M maybe this is the first book I've ever read on the subject, so let's qualify it, all right? But yeah. um, here's another one I really enjoyed. This is out of the book, folks. Creative disciplines can carry a certain stigma socially. Studying art for any length of time attracts the cliched refrain to get a real job. But what I learned at art school was that creativity is reality. Art represents living in the real world much more palpably than servicing a real job. Once you create your own alternate universe, it is an easier place to live and survive. And some artists are simply unemployable in any other way. A creative mindset can be applied to many other vocations, but often an artist's unique skills are not properly valued or understood. Found that really interesting. Mm. I, I live with an extraordinary artist, Kate, and, Absolutely. you know, I'd say a genius artist and I work with a lot of other artists. My brother's a great artist. I grew up with a, a, a brother who's a great painter and drawer, so I always was kind mm -hmm. of in awe of him and thought, well, okay, he's creative, he's clever, he's an artist. I'm not, you know, because I couldn't do that. So it was only, mm -hmm. I only sort of wound up in the arts by accident and found something I was interested in and then I sort of, I've had some success at it, but I've never really considered myself an artist because I've been surrounded by people like my brother and my wife. But I guess, mm. I, I, guess I am. But um, it's one of the reasons the book resonated with me is you seem to be able to succinctly describe artists, the artist world, and how what it's like, obviously, growing up with your father, one of, mm. I mean, as, as he said, Australia's greatest living artist, certainly mm. greatest living painter, I learn a lot about that. So tell me about that paragraph I read. Do you remember writing that one? Of course I remember writing it. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we still largely live in a very Philistine country. Where, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Don't hold back, mate. Yeah, well, you know, I've got to rip into a lot of the way that I see politics play out in regard to art funding going down that um, 
essentially um, art students have to pay more to study art at universities or art schools than, say, someone studying medicine and engineering or whatever. So art has been sort of put on the back burner in regard to how it's considered to be important in society. And that, that really annoys me because um, art should be a way by which it's not just how the artist sees himself or herself, it's about how the artist is able to articulate or visually articulate or express what they see going on in their society, if not their country, if not the world. I think artists play an enormous part in regard to um, spreading you know, powerful messages. And being an artist is very confronting and it's a lonely job. It takes a certain temperament to be an artist. Um, if you're a person who, um, who doesn't like to be alone, I wouldn't recommend being an artist. But I think that I've learned more about truth in what I've heard through poetry or literature or looking at paintings than what I see on television or what I see in films where everybody is um, wanting to sort of create an alternative world, an alternative universe, a fantasy, you know, where... I mean, that's why I love European films, French films, because um, they don't hold back in making films that, you know, deal directly with the human experience. And it's being able to express the human experience that helps us understand ourselves and our society better. And artists play an extremely important role in that part. And so I really meant when I wrote that, that um, it's not fair that, you know, many of the... uh, the narrow-minded people in our society consider art to be some kind of folly or sort of a, a thing that people do as a hobby. Art is an important narrative on our existence. When we look through art history, when we look at the Egyptians or the Greeks, where we don't really have a lot of verb, we only have imagery, how much have we learnt from their art that necessarily would otherwise not have given us such an incredible insight into who they were and what their civilization was like. I think my father said to me once, you know, when I was a young art student and um, he was talking about how his life as as a student and also being an artist that went out to the bush and painted with people like Arthur Boyd and Sid Nolan and Fred Williams. He said, um, we didn't think about it at the time, but ultimately we were creating a culture and we didn't know it. He said, therefore, never underestimate the time you're living in now because it might look minimal what you're doing at the moment or what you and your contemporaries and your peers are doing now, but one day people will look back at that as basically something that expressed the time in which you existed. That's beautiful. Mm. Let's talk about your dad for a bit and growing up, I guess, uh, well, as you say in the book, under the shadow of the great John Olson, an extraordinary childhood, gypsies, bohemians, travelling everywhere. I mean, it was a wonderful insight. Well, I can relate, having grown up in Sydney and around the harbour and the beaches and all of that, it was all very familiar and I loved re-experiencing my own childhood on a kind of via. Tell us about that time and some of the gifts and some of the challenges of uh, growing up with your dad. Well, um... He's an incredibly charismatic man and he's a great character. He certainly was a person who was before his time. He grew up in a house where there was no books, no art, and he just had this impulse to draw. So the only paper that he could find were his mother's cookbooks. So he would draw on his 
from the age of seven. He was drawing all through his mother's cookbooks because that was the only paper that he could find. Wow. But um, how could someone who basically came from an extremely um, non-visual world end up being such a great visionary and a, a visual person? You know, it's it's really important that um, we understand that there's hope for all of us, you know. I mean, how does someone suddenly be born to be gifted in music when they probably didn't grow up in a house where there was music? I think there are certain things in life that we're, it's, it's about discovering that um, perhaps in the midst of hopelessness, gee whiz, you know, I can play the guitar or I can draw. I've got this talent and I don't know how or why and, and this is all I want to do. And I love stories of people who have come from very humble beginnings who have ended up becoming great creatives, you know, just segueing a bit. I remember as a young man at art school going to a club or it was, a, it was like a kind of um, bar that had bands. And I remember seeing I'm talking and there was Kate and I never thought in my life that I'd ever get to know her. But the thrust of her talent, I used to see them whenever they played because, because I grew up in Spain and basically was surrounded by flamenco. I mean, flamenco has played in all the restaurants. You know, I, I learned about that passion, that sort of life and death experience of perhaps throwing your vulnerability out there and just going for it. And that's what I love about watching Kate. You know, she was this young girl who just had such um, an incredible zest for life that came through her, her talent and her singing. And it's the same with, with any artist. People need to be inspired by people who just go for it. Everybody dance now. And <laughs> it's one of those lucky things, I suppose, that I've grown up around a lot of passionate people. Yeah, wow. Talking about prodigious talent, do you think these people arrive with the talent? Do you think it's a spiritual thing that they've done before and that they're arriving with? Or do you think it's just an affinity that they pick it up quickly? Well, I mean... You know, we could be extremely esoteric about this and think of it very holistically, that artists channel, you know, something from the universe. I believe that um, when I watch my father paint, that it's almost like something's working through him, you know, that sort of mind, heart, soul, hand connection is a spiritual experience. Yeah. And my father talks about how, and many artists I've known over the years talk about the fact that they call it the muse, you know, she is the goddess of, of creativity. There are many aspects by which you earn the right to channel creativity. I think the best art that's ever produced is the artist that's creating from the point of view that they're not thinking about the audience, they're not thinking about themselves. They are in a process of selflessness in how they make it, which I think creates a kind of, um, I suppose, a conduit to the universe to allow a very honest form of creativity to flow through you. I think humility is enormously important in being an artist. And I think the best creators are those that aren't thinking about how much am I going to get for this painting when I finish it. But I'm not doing this for any other reason than I just love it. You know, I love what I do. And it's love that can only come from a very sincere and honest place in your heart that allows an artist to make something that has a kind of um, sort of sacredness in a sense the timelessness, that the greatest art that we see in any museum is art that is timeless. When an artist was not working for any other reason, then that was a passion, that was what they wanted to do, and they were completely oblivious to where the art may end up. They were just working with that lump of clay or that blank canvas, 
and no other thoughts than the purity of expression. Well articulated. Tell us about your journey and transition, I guess, from, okay, going to art school and drawing and painting and, I guess, heading towards that path and then the pivot and the realisation to going, you know what, that's not me. I'm more suited to being a gallerist, to being an art dealer and the other things you've gone on to do incredibly successfully, I might add. You're probably the, if not the, one of the leading gallerists in Australia and very Mm. well respected. And other than, you know, the self-destructive part of your life, um, I Mm. haven't ever heard a bad word about you other than pretty well what you did to yourself. (laughs) Well, you know, I struggle with my demons and, uh, you know, I certainly um, have no shame in, in talking about my, my struggle with addiction. Um, you know, I grew up in a world where alcohol was normalised and um, everybody drank. I remember in the old days, you know, it was really shit wine in flagons and wine was just being poured everywhere. And um, so I, I kind of um, grew up thinking that to drink as much as you like or as my father calls the, you know, the bon vivant joie de vivre, and the celebration, you know, very sort of Dionysian way of looking at life was really, um, you know, the way by which we reward ourselves for what we do. Unfortunately, I was born like my grandfather's with a disposition to um, getting to a point where once I started, I couldn't stop. And really, um, addiction is a disease of the mind, body and soul. And it was only through, as Carl Jung, who worked with the guys that started AA, he said that there will never be a medical cure for addiction. It is really only through developing the spiritual aspect of yourself that you'll find that capacity, you know, with the help of whether you believe in God or the universe or nature, to believe in the intangible could help you deal with a problem that really exists with the fact that you're um, carrying a deeper trauma that you are medicating over. And when you read the book, I've told the stories of the traumas that I experienced with child abuse and also having a father who married multiple times and the elements of abandonment. I mean, look, my father never went out of his way to hurt me, but we're sensitive people. And I think my addiction played out coveting those traumas. But ultimately, as I said, I didn't want to be a victim. My message in it is really, if I can do it, so can you. Well, uh, the message was well received. And um, I mean, I don't have that same addictive trait when it came to alcohol. Yeah. I mean, I was I was astonished reading the compulsion that yeah. you had to keep drinking. It's um, beyond me, but I was like, wow, that's just an incredibly destructive compulsion. And yeah, hats off to, to your wife, Dom, at the time for yeah. putting, putting up with you for as long as she did. And paid as well, by the way. <laughs> well, well, I've given you lots of glowing praise. I've had to uh, go to the other side too. And um, I'm very pleased you came out the other side. I think ultimately um, there is a genetic disposition. I mean, we all find ways to escape our day-to-day stress. Most people defer to alcohol, that drink at the end of the day, and um, it, it crept up on me. I was able to, to drink quite normally through my 20s, but um, the older I got, the more this trauma sort of came to the surface. But um, I do believe some people, unfortunately, are, are born with a disposition. I've got nothing against people who enjoy a drink, but... I'm just fortunate. I've now got a 17-year-old son, you know, who's already enjoying a beer 
you know, I'm constantly saying, you know, everything in moderation, even moderation itself. But um, I just pray that he hasn't inherited what I did. And, and also, when you read the book, you'll talk about the certain experiences my grandfather's had, you know, particularly my grandfather on the um, my mother's side who, you know, ran plantations in New Guinea and he would um, hit the brandy and he'd be found naked walking around the highlands of New Guinea a few days later, you know. Lovely man. He was a, a British officer, but like me, he was completely powerless over alcohol. Yeah, it's uh, mm. and it's an extraordinarily entrenched, ingrained part of our culture, isn't it, to have a beer here? Because I've often talked to friends overseas or in the US or something about, well, you just got to have a beer. If you're there if you're in a certain situation in Australia, you got to have a beer. You're going to offend people Look, if you don't. When I travelled, you know, to a new country, the first thing I'd learned to speak in that foreign language was, um, you know, where is the nearest bar and, and, and how do I order a beer, you know? Exactly. Here's this paragraph. To an Australian man, it is still hard to turn down a drink without looking like a bore, even with the lockout laws and initiatives like Dry July. Our national image is embedded somewhere within the strange split between convicts and Irish rebels and colonial British decadence. As a result, Mm. there is always a reason to get rinsed and always a social identity to match the moment. Drinking is sophisticated and larrikin, sensual and intellectual, civilised and pagan, accepted and naughty, youthful and yet mature enough for the wine snobs. It is fun until the fun runs out and you're a fat sugar junkie standing in front of the fridge at 3am taking a slug of vodka to help you sleep. Yeah. It's uh, paint quite a picture there, mate. It's many people's story, not just mine. No, I'm sure. And thanks for your courage in communicating your story. And I urge people to read the book and be inspired. Yeah, yeah. well, I can't believe that um, so many people have come away from the book and expressed how, even though they hadn't grown up in the creative world, there was something in the book that, that related to them. I think one of the most important aspects of the book that I wanted to express that, you know, to, to feel as though that you live in the shadow of something is not something just reserved for people who have privileged upbringings. You know, you could be the, the son of a panel beater or the daughter of a mother who from the Country Women's Association who made the best bonds, who has a charisma and a character that you feel, oh, my God, I'll, I could never live up to that. It's not about necessarily fame. All of us can turn our parents into demigods and put ourselves into a mindset where it's something that we would struggle or would be fine to hard to live up to. It's a story that everybody shares, not just the elite. And we've, we've seen what people of privilege can suffer from probably uh, being in a situation where, you know, they've been given everything and ultimately when their parents die, because they've never really learned how to earn a dollar themselves, a lot of them decline and great tragedy can occur. And, you know, having children myself, people assume that my son will inherit the gallery or whatever, but no, he's going to have to earn it. And I think for all of us, it's, um, it's what we work for ourselves, what we did for ourselves that are the greatest rewards, not what we were given by others. And extremely grateful that even those hard times when my father married other women and he was giving them and their children the rewards of his success, My sister and I, particularly when my father was living in Adelaide and for many years and we hardly ever got to see him, we both of us got to work. You know, I went to art school, I worked in restaurants, 
My sister went to art school, started making jewellery that she would um, sell at Paddington Markets, and now she owns a design company, Dinosaur Designs, which has now got stores all around the world. And so even though it was tough that we had to still pay our way when, you know, our father was looking after other people, I think it was the greatest gift he ever gave us because we had to get off our ass and create our own lives. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons in there, mate, and we're sort of going through that now in a, in a way with our daughter Gypsy who is 17. You know, she's a gifted songwriter and singer and is interested in that path, but, you know, it's a, a pretty daunting prospect when your mum is arguably the greatest female vocalist of her generation. Without question. So far, Gypsy's holding her own and, um, you know, she's got her head, head screwed on pretty well. But, uh, yeah, not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> no, it takes an enormous amount of courage to take on the same vocation as your parents, particularly if they're, if they're very successful. I mean, I was a very good painter. I was a very good printmaker at art school. But um, I think the turning point for me was when I was young and impressionable, someone said to me, well, in 200 years they'll be talking about your father, not you, you know. And that kind of really freaked me out. But, but I, I didn't want my life to be judged as being mediocre compared to somebody else. And I think my father also said to me from his own experience that you've either got to be bloody good or forget it. You know, I, I still draw and I still make things, but I do it for me. But I'm very lucky that I found a place in the art world without having to be a bloody artist and that I've been able to still give something very important without necessarily having to be a painter. But the great paradox is that I love people, you know. I love communicating. I love conversation and being around people. And I ended up being a writer, which is just as lonely as being an artist. (laughs) (laughs) And the older I got, the less I became a people person, you know. Yeah, well, I guess in a way a part of sort of trying to stay away from the booze, so you're probably like, okay, I want to stay away from less social interaction where I'd be tempted to do that and then in the course of it you've um, then started putting your thoughts down and voila, you're, you're an author. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't see that coming. But, you know, it still doesn't stop me from going to a good party or a dinner party, you know. In fact, my dearest friends say to me, Tim, you're far more hilarious and far more interesting since you gave up drinking, you know. <laughs> Classic. Because I had clarity of mind, you know. Yeah. And then to, to be able to remember the great anecdotes of your existence <laughs> is great to have when you don't drink, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, there'd be very sort of foggy pathways to try and access those things that define your life. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your work as a gallerist. You've actually nurtured and supported and given platforms to hundreds of artists and many who have gone on to be uh, world-renowned and our finest, in addition to once you got your own gallery up and running and had shown you were good at it, your dad came over and allowed you to sell his collections at your galleries. Talk us through that process. Well, really, uh, as I said, I was prepared to be a teacher at the end of art school. That's why I studied, you know, cognitive development, the uh, teachings of Skinner and Piaget in regard to, um, you know, how we, our brains are formed to learn and how to digest information and for it to interact with your own individualism. And I was a teacher of Sydney Grammar for a little bit. Anyway, my father, who was living in another state at the time, came to Sydney and he was having lunch with his dealer 
who owned a gallery in Melbourne and he was opening in Sydney. And I'd just left art school and I'd just graduated. I was thinking about, you know, applying for a job in a school to be an art teacher. Anyway, towards the end of that lunch, my father said to me, um, Stuart, his dealer, is going to open in Sydney and he wants you to work for him. And I thought to myself, wow, this could be interesting. So I was part of the, um, the birth of Australian galleries in Sydney and, and I took to it like a duck to water because, you know, I was dealing with artists like Brett Whiteley, Jeffrey Smart, Arthur Boyd, my father's work. I was thrown in with the masters and I was this young punk <laughs> who had to, you know, deal with people who were obviously very wealthy and some of them had a very cynical sort of kind of opinion of art at times. You had to express that what these objects were were very real and, and that the reason why they were expensive is because of the fact that there is a, an inequality to what makes them good, you know, what makes a great artist. People need to have their hands held in regard to understanding why, you know, the deeper metaphors, the quality of the painting, you know, the quality of the drawing, the underlying aspects, the layers of what makes something great in the same way that why do we find certain music interesting because there's a lot of underlying folk aspects to contemporary music. I mean, when you talk about hip-hop and, and how that sort of has got its inner layers of generations of people who've formed a kind of culture through their existence and how it underwrites the tentacles of what it is today. And it's the same with painting. All the great artists I've known had to spend hours drawing the Roman bust in art school. And a lot of them were passionate about, say, the Impressionists or perhaps, you know, looking at the abstract Expressionists in New York to come up with the work that they do today. And um, I hate to use this cliche, you know, the word tapestry, but anything that has a very sincere and very pertinent place in regard to art has to have that sort of cultural depth, I think, for it to be an authentic message. And I think people criticise art that can be derivative, but there is a certain point where the derivativeness becomes the unique object of what that artist as an individual is able to produce themselves and um, not be ashamed of the fact that perhaps they were influenced by Van Gogh or Mark Rothko or Willem de Kooning or Jackson Pollock. Yeah. But at least we're working from somewhere where people have, have certainly created a segue for you to follow your own path and allow what it is about you and your individualism to sort of transcend and take that on and go past that, if you know what I mean. Well articulated, mate. No, it's the same in music or any art mm. form. Everyone has their influences and things they grew up with that they were moved by and, you know, mm. you can't help but have them be infused and in there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, this is the thing. I've, I'm always um, meeting a lot of young artists. I think every week I get about 10 portfolios or 10 artists a week asking me to look at their Instagram or whatever. It's a wonderful thing. I really celebrate anyone who has the courage to be an artist. And it's very difficult to criticise anybody who makes art. I celebrate anyone who wants to be an artist. You can tell when people have really come from a place where they've learnt a lot from others to start with. I think that there should be no shame in being inspired or influenced by others. One of the things that I love most about my job is it's got nothing to do with money, but when a young artist comes to me and I give them a go, their work starts to sell, their work ends up in great collections, 
They end up having art being placed in institutions and museums. They buy themselves their studio. They buy themselves a house. They end up having children. They can educate their children. They can take trips overseas. And, you know, through the gallery, they've been able to create a life and be allowed to be creators, allowed to be artists and afford to be able to be artists. That is what makes me happy, you know, where people can follow their dream and it's, it has currency. Beautiful. Mm. Well, the, the art world is kind of notorious for sharks, so I'm sure you're cherished by the artists that are represented by you. You know, a lot of people sort of put art dealers along with car salesmen and real estate agents <laughs> and fuck them, you know. I mean, but the thing is it takes a lot of scholarship to be good at this job. A lot of people end up having a lot of money and they open up their own art galleries and a lot of them don't survive because essentially... Well, they, they see it as a kind of glamorous thing to do. The galleries that survive are those gallery owners that really do love artists. And it's the dealers that don't pay their artists and they don't run their business ethically that ruin it for others. But essentially, um, if you don't love artists, if you don't like artists as people, you should not open an art gallery because <laughs> that's, at the end of the day, what it's all about. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, um, tell me about the state and your thoughts on art criticism and reviewers. I, I was fascinated to read that your godfather was Robert Hughes. Yes, and, um, yeah. Wow, I never knew that. And, I mean, what a intriguing, clever character and, you know, he sort of rose, I guess, to the leading art critic in the world at one point. Yeah. That's like a total trip. Obviously, they have a place in the business, but I don't know, give me your thoughts on art criticism and uh, for someone that's working day-to-day with artists and knowing how vulnerable and sensitive they are. Well, I was very lucky. I mean, I remember when I first started writing, and Bob Hughes was still alive, and I told Bob that I loved writing about art and I'd love to write a book. And I said, but I don't have time. And he said to me, well, what time do you get up in the morning? And I said, oh, seven. He said, well, get up at five <laughs> and start writing. And, um, you know, that sort of gave me an idea of the discipline of if you want to do something bad enough, that's a sacrifice you have to make. But getting back to our criticism, unfortunately, um, you know, we, we live in a time where our art critics are more interested in covering blockbusters. You know, they want to junk it. They want to be able to fly somewhere here or there and cover what exhibitions are coming out from Europe or America or talk about the Archibald or talk about exhibitions in places and not giving any coverage of commercial galleries or small galleries. We really lack critics that will go to, you know, most galleries will tell you, but really do critics ever come in and cover their exhibitions, which is really bad. I think the media has a responsibility to cover in the same way that music critics have to go and see musicians to be able to tell what's happening or what artists are doing. And um, unfortunately, there was a time where um, a critic could make or break an artist's career. And uh, Robert Hughes had the capacity to do that. There are critics that were friends of my father in the old days, like Laurie Thomas, or probably names people have never heard of, or Paul Heifliger. I mean, there was James Gleeson. There, there were critics who could actually make or break you in the same way that a music critic can make or break an artist, you know. I've always loved that saying by uh, Oscar Wilde, that it's worse to be ruined by praise and destroyed by criticism. My father has often told me that it's the worst reviews he ever got were the ones that inspired him to show those bastards and only motivated him to go further. Adversely, I've seen a lot of artists become quite successful 
you know, there are artists who are now the darlings of Australia, the darlings of Sydney, who are almost like showmen. They posture themselves as being, I suppose, sort of theatrical creatives that, in a sense, through their success, they've, you know, become like celebrities. I mean, never before do we live in a world where people like Damien Hirst can be like a rock star, where artists could be like rock stars. You go to art fairs around the world and you talk about different artists and they're like superstars. You know, that was never like that when I was young. So really the art critic plays a lesser role in regard to the success of an artist. It's all about marketing and branding. And when Charles Saatchi, the great advertising guru, took on Damien Hirst and thought about the idea of creating him as a brand, that suddenly we saw this huge sort of invention and creation of you know, the artist as the superstar through using media as a form by which to promote them, not relying so much on criticism by serious critics, but more the role of curators yeah. and collectors and really being the, the ways by which we determine whether something is good or not. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bad artists who are very good marketers who have got a lot of leverage. And after a while, you often see that they kind of evaporate because fashion is playing more of a role in the art world. To be a fashionable artist is a terrible position to be in because essentially, you know, everything goes out of fashion. A true artist is someone who makes something that has a perpetuity. Um, my father talks about, uh, you know, being a young artist is young talent time. And then he talks about the toughest part of an artist's career is the mid-career, where you've had all that success as a young, young artist. You are that young rock star. And then you come to this sort of middle part of your life, which is what I went through too. And my father calls it the billabong period, where suddenly you find yourself cut off from the river and you're standing in this stagnant, you know, sort of pond. It's like what happened with me. I mean, I had a wonderful wife. I had a wonderful business. I had a child. I thought I had everything in life. But why was I still unhappy, you know, when I had everything? It was because I'd lost my spiritual essence. I'd lost my connection with my truer, deeper self and, you know, what it really means to be authentic and to, to love yourself unnarcissistically. So the illusion of success can be extremely dangerous. And to work through that, to work through that billabong period, to create that next body of work that transcends you into a master. And um, recently I'm, I just turned 59 and I'm turning 60 next year, which terrifies me. But my father the other night at dinner, we'd cooked a loving meal, we were in front of the fire, and there was a moment of silence and he grabbed my hand and he said to me, I'm so proud of you, darling. I said, why, Dad? He said, because you've reached the Grand Plateau, which is the period after the Billabong period where you've tackled your demons, you've really realised who you are, and you really realise what more you have to give. With that wisdom, through the failures and through the, I suppose, the problems and the, the tragedies that have made you stronger and capable of now being able to use this last part of your life which I hope will be another 30 years like it is for my father, to really be able to um, cement what my existence represents. That's beautiful, mm. mate. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What a beautiful thing to receive from your dad at this time with him at 93. I mean, he's still so sharp. Oh, yeah, but he's right. Yeah. You know, you, you see it in all walks of life where people go through young talent time and then suddenly everything just falls apart. 
Yeah, there was a great line out of the book from your dad. When you were the Sydney darling, you're in trouble. They use you mm. up as if you're blotting paper for their own entertainment and then someone else comes mm. along and they throw you away like a rag. That's when you get on with being a person. That's right. Exactly. Wow. Not everyone makes it. No, 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 that's, you know. that's for sure. There was another, I mean, on that note, talking about your parents, another beautiful thing your mum said to you from the book, I'm so proud of you because you've learned how to be yourself and to love yourself. That is all a mother wants for her child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a very defining moment in my life because before she died, she'd seen me beat addiction and um, she'd seen that I'd suddenly learnt a bit more humility, that I'd learnt how to really respect the life I was given by her and my father. And um, she was on her deathbed. She had a brain tumour and really for her to say, you know, I don't really care about your gallery, I don't really care about your your fashionable friends or, your, you know, your Range Rover. That means nothing to me at all. And I said, Mum, you never criticised me ever in your life. She said, no, I just want to tell you how proud I am of you because you've truly learned how to love and respect yourself and that's all I ever wanted. And I burst into tears and that was the last thing she ever said to me and she died two weeks later. Wow. Mm. And that's what we want for our own children. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We want them to learn about who they really are and to understand that, that love is something that starts from in here, you know. Beautiful. That's where we begin to be able to give to life and to others. Yeah. From here. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Mm. We're nearly, uh, nearly going to wrap this up. I've really enjoyed this chat. I could chat with you for hours. You're a wonderful yeah. conversationalist and an absolute gentleman. Thank you very much. Well, I've, I've had a tremendous respect for you, Lee, knowing all the things that you've done. And um, being married to a successful artist is like being the child of an artist. But you've certainly created your own, you know, world and you're very, very good at what you do. And it's a great honour for me to be able to have this conversation with you with great respect. Thanks, mate. Mm. Appreciate mm. that. So... What's next? What's your dad working on? Is your son showing interest in, in art? Uh, what's coming up at the gallery? Well, here's a photograph of, I don't know whether you can really see it. Oh, yeah, I can. But that's him in this huge big mural of the sun. Oh, wow. And there he is in his pyjamas. He's 93 and he's painting two by six metre murals. He just cannot stop. And people bump into him in the street in the local village because I'm now at his farm. And um, they say to him, you know, Johnny, you're still painting. And he says, well, what do you expect me to be doing, walking around a golf course? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, what else, for him, what else is breathing, you know? To make things for him is sort of oxygenating himself. Yeah, yeah. Kate's like that. There's nothing that Kate hates more than when she's in the supermarket and she'll get three people in a row going, oh, are you still singing? Mm. You know, it's like there's no retirement when you're an artist like Kate Sobrano or John Olson. No. <laughs> As you said in your book, it's like creating art for them is like breathing. Exactly. And um, it's, it's a kind of nourishment that's as important as eating for an artist. My father's built his studio off his bedroom and if he's suffering a bit of insomnia, he'll get up and sort of go into the studio and have a little tinker, you know. It's this constant idea of being engaged in something is what fuels you and makes you love the life that you have. And, you know, he, he doesn't understand the word retirement. No. Making art is part of 
just being, you know. Absolutely. There was a great line from one of your mates. He said, your dad will be something like this, paraphrasing it. Your dad will be painting the inside of his own coffin or something. Is that how it went? Yeah. The funny thing is I had this very bohemian upbringing and my parents could see that I needed more structure in my life. Um, having lived in an artist commune where everyone was swimming naked in the dam and there was just, you know, my sister and I were basically free-range kids, you know. Yeah. And um, my father sent me to um, to a military school, a king's school, you know. So coming from a very left-wing upbringing, I was thrown straight into a very right-wing school. It was only being good at rugby and rowing that I survived. But I love fact that we still have school reunions and some of the greatest people I've ever met in my life was the people I went to school with who were from the bush, the country boys, yeah. who also had their own notion of um, living a life of no bullshit because when you're a farmer, you know, you're at the mercy of, of nature and there's no way of fudging nature, you know, when it comes to droughts or floods, whatever. And um in those days, we didn't go to Mykonos, we didn't go to Aspen skiing. I used to go out to the bush and crutch sheep and fix fences. And a lot of those country boys today are still great mates, even though they're not colourful arty types. They're just great characters. And so I was at a school reunion and one of my mates who's out from Ningen or Wellington, my nickname at school was Ollie, you know, Ollie Olson. He says, hey, Ollie, is your old man still painting? And I said, of course he is. He said, Jesus He'll be painting the inside of his coffin the way he's going. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. (laughs) Oh, that's gold. Yeah, I went to Scott's. So I had, uh, you know, up the road from where you went and, um, yeah, there was the whole country boy contingent and, yeah, a lot of them sold to the earth, great Mm. blokes. I do remember playing rugby against Kings and getting absolutely smashed every time. Sorry about that. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, mate. Well, look, I better wrap this up. Um, what's on at the gallery? I mean, I know it's bloody closed right now, but um, what are you excited about next? Oh, well, I've, I've just had a wonderful show of my father's uh, works based on amphibians. My father's iconic, I suppose, artwork is the frog, which he sort of finds is in the old days, you know, when he had to pay my school fees, nothing else was selling but the frogs. He'd been on a trip to Queensland with the, the film crew and did some drawings of frogs and suddenly everyone wanted an Olsen frog. <laughs> he often um, jokes that, you know, frogs paid my school fees, you know, in the old days. So I, a very big collector who collected a lot of his frog artworks passed away and so I had an exhibition of their estate, which I called Amphibia, which is a beautiful show. At the moment, I've got uh, a wonderful exhibition of Indigenous women from the APY lands, you know, the Pitanjara country, two hours west of Alice Springs and Uluru. They're incredible women. And uh, it was wonderful to be given the right of passage to represent those artists, particularly the works that are collaborative, where several women will work on one painting. And so even in lockdown, I've got that show on at the moment and it's selling out just offline. Wow. It's incredible. But it, it was really important for me to find a way into representing Indigenous art and getting rid of the carpetbaggers, you know, the ones that go in and pay a few hundred dollars and sell out thousands and the, the Indigenous communities being, you know, sold short. I'm really proud to represent Indigenous art and pay them the rightful commission they deserve. And to marry that in with my non-Indigenous artists, to have a language and a narrative about painting that belongs to the deeper part of our Australian culture. You know, Indigenous art really began 60,000 years ago. 
So to represent art that we talked about before, the idea of the derivativeness of where something can go back centuries from where the idea first began, is seen so clearly in Indigenous art. And uh, the works just have a spiritual transcendence, which is just amazing to have the privilege to work around these artists. I have another artist on in the other space, a wonderful young artist called Sally Anderson, who is a tremendous painter. And uh, what makes her so good is she just has this beautiful aesthetic, this deliciousness with paint and a lovely freedom in how she works, which stems from the fact that she's actually a really, really good drawer. And I think drawing is the backbone of painting. So to be able to hold that brush and do what you do with that brush gets back to being able to draw to begin with. To have a young woman artist who is a young contemporary artist to exhibit with these Indigenous women at the same time in separate spaces all within the one gallery provides a breadth of experience. What I love to do, which for me keeps the gallery interesting, and even though we're shut, we're still selling, which is amazing. Wow, that's wonderful. I think we're getting the money that Qantas isn't getting. No disrespect to Alan Joyce. You know. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful, mate. I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, the gallery is alive and well and the art world is flourishing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think people in isolation are reaching out for something more. Yeah, totally agree. Well, mate, mm. let's, let's wrap it up. Love your work. Thank you for your book. I think it's a real gift to culture in this country and I look forward to seeing you soon, not for a beer but for something to eat. I'll have a kombucha with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for this episode. If you're not already inspired to read Tim's memoirs, then do yourself a favour, grab a copy of Son of a Brush. His website is olsengallery.com. That's Olsen, O-L-S-E-N, gallery.com. Or if you're in Sydney, head to his gallery in Wallara and see some of the work live and hung. What? Not on a screen, you say? Outrageous! The link to the New York Gallery is on the website as well. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week... Live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. <laughs>